We're talking about relationships and the importance of them uh, for probably obvious reasons. I don't think I have to convince anybody in this place uh, that we desperately desire to be connected in meaningful ways. I had a visceral and visual and emotional view of what that feels like in my own life some time ago when someone, uh, a friend from this church, from the first service, his name was Jeff, he invited me to Saturday morning at his local CrossFit gym. And I went with him to CrossFit on that Saturday morning. For those of you that have no idea what CrossFit is, it's basically a giant, meets in a giant square cube, open space, and is generally known for being communal, everybody works out together, and for doing a a combination of very high-intensity workouts with weight training. And those are often just thrown together into circuits, which you do over and over and over until you are passed out on the ground and they have to wheel you out on a stretcher. So I went with Jeff to CrossFit, and we were just hanging out together, and uh, we rolled up, and he gave me the, the itinerary, the agenda for the day, or the workout of the day. And I looked at it, and I'm like, this isn't going to be bad at all. I'm going to ace this. This is going to be great. And we started the workout, and it was all pretty simple stuff. Like, the first thing was, like, grabbing a barbell, doing this over and over. I'm like, got this, no problem. I've got this down. And then we moved from that, and we did uh, jumps onto these boxes. I'm like, I could jump all day, no problem. I've got this. And the next thing was, like, burpees, where you get down on your, your, your chest, and you push yourself up in this explosive manner. And that's all we did. I did one circuit. I'm like, this is going to be the easiest thing in my life. I'm going to show these guys. Just pastor of the gym right now. I'm just going to be on. And then the, the group leader, his name was Kendall, and he looked like this, uh, turned and as I was going back into the gym, he was like, all right, now we got to do a lap around the, around the block. And my heart sank. Here's why. I hate running. I hate it. I hate it with all the fiber within my being. I, I'm not the type of person who's in a hurry to get anywhere. I'm chill. Therefore, running has absolutely no use to my life ever, so I don't do it. And so when I got plunged into running around the block, I, it wasn't within like a few minutes that I just started feeling like these sensations, like fire in my ribs. And then it felt like my shin muscles were falling, peeling off the shins. I'm like, what's happening to me right now? Had no form, I'm tripping around. And everybody around me is just laughing. They're like, ha, 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 we're just running. And we go around the block the first time and I'm already winded. I'm, my, I'm already winded, and I, I start to go back into the gym, and Kendall, the group leader, says, oh, we're doing two. We're going to do two laps. And when he said that, not only did my heart sink, but my shoulders begin to droop as well, because I started doing the math, and I was like, two, four times four, that's eight laps. And I'm like, I'm not going to make it through the first round. We did that second lap, and everyone's going in front of me. They're starting to, they're starting to get ahead of me. And I'm about ready to quit. And Kendall looks at us. He looks at us. He's been running with us the whole time. He looks back at us, and he's like, all right, you guys got the gist? Cool. And he takes off. And I realize in that moment, this guy's been holding out. This guy is out of here already. The guy next to me, he must be in his late 20s, fire, a firefighter, shirt off, shoulder boulders, perfectly sculpted abs, running with perfect form like this. Hey, what's going on, Chris? Drinking his Gatorade. Yeah. By the time I get into the gym after that first circuit, I'm dying emotionally, physically, maybe even a little bit spiritually. And we go through all of these things. By the time we get to the end of the whole workout, which, by the way, was only 20 minutes long, we get to the end of this, this workout, 
And I, I, I have already been lapped by everybody in the group, including my buddy from reality. Kendall has lapped me twice. He's, he's passed me twice around the block. So bad was this that as I'm, getting, as I'm getting to the end of that last lap, I just start walking. I pull my phone out. I look at Instagram. I'm like, maybe if I'm late enough, they'll just all leave and go to lunch so I don't have to suffer the shame of walking in like 20 minutes later. I get to the door. They're all on the floor. And I'm like, oh, no. So I walk through the door. I try to cover my eyes. Maybe I can grab my stuff and disappear. And as soon as they see me, all their conversation stops. They get up off their feet and they start clapping. Yeah, come on, go Chris, you got this, don't you give up, don't you give up, you got it. They're walking with me, I'm, because I'm, I'm like this at that point, I'm just like, they're crawling with me, they're like, you got this, don't you finish one more lap. I make it, I pass out on my back, and they start cheering with all the cheer that they have in them. Yeah, you can do this. I say that because whether you've done that before or you've done, done something else, Part of this story taps into a visceral desire and need that a lot of us have. That many of us in this room deeply desire to be known, to be valued, to be loved, to belong in some sense to a group of people, uh, maybe even to eventually participate and to contribute to something that is bigger than just our own lives. So much so do people want this that they're willing to leave the places where they used to get that, traditional institutions like church, synagogue, whatever it might be, for places where a common goal can get them together. CrossFit, yoga, crocheting, eating food, moving to a different city, whatever it is. And maybe you are here today and you've found that. You've found a connection with people. Maybe it's through a special interest. Maybe it's through your work. Maybe you have similar career interests with people. Or maybe it's people that you work with. Maybe it's recreation. Maybe it's a common interest. Maybe you get together with other parents or other people who have kids of the same age. Whatever it is, you might have found that connection around a common interest. If that's you, that's great. But maybe that's you, and you would also say, I'm, I'm looking for something deeper than that, too. I'm looking for something deeper to satisfy something deeper in me than just special interests. Or maybe you haven't even found that, and you're starving for relationships. If you're looking for something deeper, that is also great, because you were made for that. The very beginning of the Bibles that we have in front of us right now tell a story about how God created human beings. And it says unequivocally, in this very unique way, God says, let us make humanity. Let us make man in our image. And in, uh, in the image of God, he made them. Let us. God referring to, him, to himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God himself who exists by his nature in relationship and divine community then says, Let's make something that mirrors that. If you're breathing, you have a little element of that, that part of God's characteristic in you. You were made for deep spiritual relationships with other people. That's where that desire, that restlessness comes from. That's why it hurts when you don't have it or when it's been broken. 
You were designed, wired by God to long for and need other people. And you were made not just to connect on a surface level, which is okay too, but you were made to go much deeper. You were made to connect at the heart level. And you look through places like John chapter 15, 16, 17, you hear the Son of God speaking of his relationship with the Father, and you see something different than just a shared interest. You see union, unparalleled union. We were made to connect with others just like we were made to connect with God at the heart level. What do I mean by the heart level? Well, I don't mean your literal heart the one that pumps blood and oxygen through the rest of your body, though that's an important heart too. I'm speaking in the same way that the biblical authors would have referred to the heart. They would have used it metaphorically to speak about another part of you, the deepest part of who you are. The heart in ancient biblical thought usually referred to the deep parts of you, things like your desires or your willpower, your will, uh, the way that you decide things, make decisions, uh, it's for that reason that one author, Dallas Willard, put it this way, the heart is the command center of the human personality. That's what directs the rest of you. That's why Jesus would later say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or if I could rephrase his words, the heart is what animates the rest of who you are. That's where everything starts. That's where everything is driven. And that's the capacity you have for human connection at the deepest core of who you are. The problem is, what the Bible tells us, what our text tells us today, is that our capacity for deep human connection is dead. It doesn't mean we can't have relationships. It doesn't mean we can't have friends. It doesn't mean we can't have even healthy, good kinds of connections and relationships. But the capacity with which we have been designed to have has been distorted. It's been made dead. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, what's Paul saying? Well, he's not saying you're physically dead, because we're all here sitting. He's saying your heart, and not your physical heart, but that, that inward part of you has been made dead by this thing called sin. That's why your passions, your desires of the body and mind have been distorted, as he would later go on to say in verse 3. What is sin, though? If you're new to church or you haven't been to church in a long time, or even if you've been to church for 20 years, you might still have this idea that sin is like a laundry list of good things that you love that God just doesn't want you to do because he's that way. Or you might project how your parents or your employers treat you when they just kind of red tape everything that you want to do without any explanation. Sin. The thing that I want to do that I cannot do because somebody is telling me arbitrarily not to do it. But sin is so much more than just a list of arbitrary commands or prohibitions. Uh, if we were to trace our way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, when Adam and Eve were given a, a responsibility, we could see that every time sin is mentioned, it has to do ultimately with moving away from God's heart and from His will. Yes. Now, that can happen in your actions, but it can also happen in your desires. We can have desires that don't match God's heart and His will. It could be in our thought life. It could be the things that we think. It could also just be in the overall orientation of our life, where we're headed. In other words, we have lives. Humanity has lives, thick and thin, through and through, in our actions, behaviors, thoughts, orientations, and habits. 
that are by default away from God's heart and his will. Now, why would that be bad? Besides that it just, it's, it's an act against the God, our creator. Uh, is, uh, think, of, think of it this way, what it does to your heart. Whenever you take a, a plant, a sensitive plant, away from uh, its source of light, it, it begins to wither and die. And the funny thing is, the plant doesn't wither and die right away, right? If you were to take a plant that really needs light away from the windowsill, it's not going to die overnight. It's going to die after a few days, gradually. That's what sin does to the human heart. That's what a loss of connection from God's heart and his will does to your heart. And it might not happen overnight. You might say, I'm living the way that I want and things are going fine. It might not be tonight. It might not be tomorrow. But the course of humanity's trajectory is that whenever you are cut away from God's heart and his will, you will too eventually begin to wither. That's what sin does to the heart. And the Bible says that because we are far from God, sin, <clears throat> We are also far from deep, meaningful spiritual relationships, not only with God, but with other people. This is what Paul was saying in Ephesians 2.11. He said, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. There's a lot of stuff right there. Just unpack a few things. What is a Gentile? In one sense, it referred to people's ethnic origin in that day. Uh, they were non-Jews, but it also had a deeper meaning as well. It just meant people that did not know God in the same way that Israel did. Uh, the commonwealth was that gathering, that, that community of believers, of uh, Israelite believers centered around God. In other words, this is simply saying, hey, you Gentiles, you didn't know God. Back when you were Gentiles, you didn't know God, and because of that, you were separated or alienated from God's people as well as God. To make it simple, separation from God always results in alienation from people. When our hearts are dead, when we are cut off from this, we will see the effects of that bleeding out into our human relationships. That's what Paul would later refer to in verse 14 as that dividing wall of hostility, that which keeps people from one another. Or if I could put it this way, dead hearts create walls. Dead hearts always create walls. They create walls keeping us from interacting with God. They create walls that keep us from interacting with people. And the deepest relationships, the ones that we were made for, that are available to us in Christ, can only happen when the heart comes alive. That's why it's such good news when we read in verse 4 and 5, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice that it has no idea, with, uh, it has no bearing what you have done with your life up until this point. God, because he's rich in mercy and he loved you with a love that you've never even tasted before this moment, made you alive even though you were dead. By grace, you have been saved. God sees human, humanity in their helpless estate and he decides to do something about it. Not because we're great at loving people or loving him, but because he is so full of love. I'm going to intervene. That's the, that's the gospel. 
But notice that he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop with raising people's hearts to life. Christ brings us alive to God, but then he brings us back together. This is what he would say in verse 13 through 16. But now Christ, Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Think of the types of people that Paul is speaking about. Jew and Gentile, first century, people with incredible animosity and hostility towards one another. They wouldn't be caught dead talking to one another on the street. And the blood of Jesus, Paul says, has the ability to bring enemies together. He goes on to say, for he himself is our peace, who has made two groups, right? Two groups, one, and has destroyed the barrier, that dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Look at this line. His purpose was to create in himself a new humanity, a new society, a new city, a new gathering out of what used to be two. That is what Jesus does. He raises our hearts to life, but then he brings living hearts together to form a new society, which is where we get the term church. Our reality as Christians, if you're a follower of Christ, is that you are already a part of his body, the church. Uh, I love the terminology that Scripture uses to refer to, to, to the church. Uh, that's one of them. There's some other ones, but that's one of my favorites, is that it's a body with Christ as the head. Think of Christ as the head, but then there's a neck, and then there's shoulders and arms. There's a torso. There's a sternum. There's ankles. And all of them have a part to play. That's what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians. The, that's why he would say, hey, in a body, like the, the eye can't look down at the toe and say, I don't need you. If you didn't have the toe, the eye would just come crash into the ground. The whole body needs all of the parts. And that is a picture of the church. Everyone is needed and is a part of it. Everyone is needed and is a part of it. And that also means that the church is, is not just the building, right? The church in, in the New Testament understanding is not this or this or these walls. It's not a building. The church might have a building sometimes in some places of the world, but it's not the building. It's the people centered around Christ, brought together, living hearts. Uh, the church is not just a paid professional staff. It might have a paid professional staff sometimes in some places of the world, but it's more than that. It's, it's people whose hearts have been come alive who are brought together into a new family, a new society. And when we think of the church as a body, it changes the way that we think about other people. See, unless I pay attention to the rest of my body, my whole body won't function correctly. Oh, there are parts of my body that sometimes hurt, like my ankle. Or I may be hurting a part of my body, holding on to a piece of, you know, hot thing on the stove. And to ignore other parts of my body means the entire body is now dysfunctional and falling apart. See, our reality as Christians is that we are already part of a body. He's done that by the power of the gospel. And the closer you are to God, the greater capacity you have to connect both to God but also to people. I want to stop right there for a second and just camp out for a minute. Some of you are already asking questions in your mind. Uh, I want to address the elephant in the room. 
Because some of you might be saying, wait, you just said the closer you are to God, the nicer you are to people. Or the greater capacity you have to love people. But how many of us in this room can think of a few people profess to love God who have not been the nicest people in the world? The elephant in the room are mean Christians, right? I'm going to take from your incredible silence that you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's this idea that somebody can profess love for Jesus but be pretty cruel. I think uh, of a few days ago when my, my two kids, one six, one, one four, uh, Brianna and I have often talked about how baffled we were about how kind they are to one another. Just so generous. Like my son and daughter will do some of the most extraordinarily generous things to one another. Like things that Bri and I wouldn't even do for one another. Like our kids are like way more nice, you know? Like, oh, you can have my last piece of candy that I was saving for a month. Here you go, Abby. Abby responds, oh, I don't want to take that from you. You have it, and I will hold your hand. Like, just incredible, gushy acts of generosity. And then seconds later, they can be at each other's throats, literally shaking each other, saying, I wish I didn't have a sister. I wish I hadn't had a brother. Well, you're poopy. Well, no, you are. I'm telling mom, go away. I hate you. And then five seconds later, you want a piece of my candy? And I'm like, just baffled. Sometimes the church can be like that. Some of us are thinking of that person we know who knows the Bible so well and can say some of the most cutting things, right? Some of us know that person who knows so much theology. They've been walking with Christ for so many years, but they've got a bite. They've done things that have left us wounded. The elephant in the room is mean Christians. If you're closer to God, and that should mean that you're more loving with people, how come we all know so many mean people who are Christians? And we do, right? Rhetorical question. Some of the meanest people I have ever met in my life were professing Christians. Some of the biggest pain, betrayal, wounds that I've, I've, I've experienced in my life have been at church. Been at this church. Uh, none of you. You guys are all awesome. <laughs> but simultaneously, some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life were also Christians. Some of the people who have most had my back, who have stuck with me through my shame, through my problems, through my setbacks, my blind spots, have been Christians. I have been most formed in my 38 years of life by Christians at this church. How can such a wide spectrum exist? How can you go from saying, I love you, to I don't want a brother anymore? And I would have to say, from what the New Testament seems to teach, that just because you have the heart capacity to do something, does not necessarily mean that you are using the fullness of that capacity. Jesus Christ may have changed your heart when you were born again, 
But it's often up to you to begin to train the rest of your life to match and reorient with that heart. That's why we get so many exhortations like from Paul in Colossians chapter 3 when he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, life, heart to life, if you've been raised with Christ, he'll go on to say, then put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you. He's assuming we go into our new lives and new relationships with a lot of death. A lot of dead skin cells, if I could put it that way. And he tells us, you must now enter into this process of tearing that old stuff away. And in exchange for that, later in Colossians chapter 3, he would say, put on, therefore, chosen and beloved of God, compassionate hearts, humility, meekness, kindness. Do you hear what he's saying? Hey, you're starting a new journey, but this is the beginning, not the end. Now you're going to enter into a lifelong journey where you're tearing off old patterns and you're putting on new ones. Go get them. You can do it. One more lap. We bring into our new relationships. Everyone in this room brings into new relationships, into their church, into their new church, into their marriages, into their friendships, into their co-working connections, all sorts of old junk and baggage. And the longer you've lived, the more you got. We bring our greed. We bring our uh, habitual self-preservation. We bring our selfishness. We bring our subtle tendencies like passive aggression. We bring our, 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 our natural ability and desire to create factions uh, and to wall off other people. We bring our longing for power and control, our tendency to manipulate. We bring our, uh, uh, we bring our racism. We bring our patterns that we have developed from years and decades of living in our families of origins that we have learned from. We bring our blind spots. We bring our lack of social skill. We bring the habits that we have developed over years of not walking with Christ. Those do not disappear overnight just because you got born again, and they do not disappear because you heard a 35-minute sermon from me. Sermons, I hope, will inspire you to move, but Monday comes, and the habits are still there. And so Paul tells us, now you enter into a life where you are habitually tearing those things off and adopting new ones over and over and over again. We've got a word for that. You know what it's called? It's called a rhythm. You need new rhythms. In other words, we have to grab hold of that which has already been made available to us. Christ says, because of my death and resurrection, I've not only transformed your heart and life, but now you are a part of that thing that your heart has been craving since eternity deep spiritual relationship, but it's going to be messy. It's not going to be Disneyland. It's going to run into everybody's walls because we're all putting them up. And your task now is by the power of the Holy Spirit within you to begin dismantling those walls brick by brick as you apologize <laughs> in the process. What enables us to come together is the gospel. That's our reality, but what cultivates our life together are those practices that we live out. And you can see this because when, when the first, the, those first Christians in the New Testament got saved and Jesus, uh, after he rose and ascended, we see them doing some things over and over. 
Uh, some of you may know this passage, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 43, after the ascent of Jesus, as they're waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit, it says that the, these disciples got together in this little room, and they devoted themselves to rhythms. Their rhythms were the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. I want you just for a moment to pause and contemplate the sheer simplicity of what the early Christians did. I would expect so much more complexity and power moves from the original Christians. But it seems like they just did a few simple things now, it was different than what they used to do. Now, everything is surrounded around Christ. It's not merely special interests. It's not like, hey, I'm working over at the, you know, the, uh, the Trevi Fountain or whatever. I, I used to be an usher for the, the Greek gods, and now, uh, now their center, their conversation, their interests, their life, their hearts centered around Christ, but they still have rhythms. Look at this, apostles' teaching. That, that means the Bible, the scriptures, which is about Jesus. And this, is, this probably isn't a classroom. It probably isn't what we tend to think of as a church, Sunday morning, big theater. They're probably meeting together in homes, probably three, five, six people. Uh, they had fellowship. They were hanging out. Uh, they broke bread together, or meaning they had a shared meal, but it was now had this new visceral understanding to it that when they broke the bread before they ate the meal, they were reminding themselves that they're in Christ. And they prayed. And they did these four very simple things around Christ over and over. And the rest of the passage says, and awe came upon every soul. And works of the, of, of the power of God were being done. People were being healed and set free. And daily, numbers were being added to their midst. They weren't shooting light beams out of their hands. They weren't teaching for hours and hours at a time. They were meeting together and adopting a few rhythms that had Christ at the center, and they revolutionized the known world at that time. It's been said that within the 300 years after Christ walked the earth, when he started with 12 disciples and later 70 disciples, and perhaps at the apex of his resurrection, about 500 disciples, that within 300 years, the population of Christians ballooned to about 20 million Keep in mind, this is not like the Christian South. This is like Rome. When, that was the, when being a Christian, being baptized in Christ meant being beheaded or crucified. And people could not stop rolling in the doors to meet this Jesus. How did it happen? By the resurrection? Yes. How did people experience the resurrection in other people's lives? Simply by a group of people devoting themselves to some simple rhythms that got their eyes back on Jesus. This group went on to change the world. Perhaps you're sitting here deeply desiring something like that. Maybe you got your crochet club or your book club and you're like, this is great, but my soul, my heart needs more than this. I need somebody who will be at the end of the finish line, who will be waiting there going, come on! I need somebody who will pour into my life. I need somebody who I can speak about the dark 
corners of my heart to, who will not judge or condemn me, but who will wrap their arms around me and preach Jesus and his love to me. I need something deeper than what I have been experiencing up until this point. If that's you, understand today by the power and authority of God's word that that is available to you already because the gospel is the good news that his kingdom has broken into your world right now. All that is needed for you is by faith to grab a hold of what's been available to you and perhaps to adopt rhythms that will keep your eyes centered on what is yours. For the early apostles, it was the teaching, it was the scriptures, it was hanging out, it was breaking bread, eating together, and it was prayers, a model of rhythms that has helped thousands of people for hundreds of years. Maybe that's what you need today. Whatever you need. I think the relational rhythms that we need to create today is going to look differently depending on where you are at today. And here's three things I want to point out, three places that some of you may be at today uh, before we close. One, some of you may need to step out. I say that because some of you uh, don't have meaningful relationship. You don't have that type of person in your life. There's an absence there. You might come to church, but church feels like to you lonely because you're surrounded by hundreds of people and yet you know nobody and nobody knows you. You're isolated, you're lonely. And perhaps God is calling you to step out and to try something. And that might be something as simple as joining a home group. It might be uh, joining a class. What are they teaching? Who cares? There's people there that want Jesus. For some of you, it might just be serving on a team on a Sunday just to be around people that are going in the same direction. Or it might be something completely different. And this might be, a, this might be an act of faith for you. It might really be stepping out because some of you have been hurt by people just like that. Mean Christians. Less mature Christians, I should say. And maybe you're apprehensive about stepping out into anything but the things that we want often require acts of faith and risk. And in this case, it requires vulnerability, knowing that we might get hurt in the process, but the end goal is going to be worth it. Because for every immature Christian out there who steps on our toes, there will be a few others who are waiting there at the end of the finish line saying, come on. Some of you just need to step out and risk a little bit by faith. Others need to look up. I say that because some of you, uh, uh, for some of us, relationships might be selfish. We have relationships, some of us. We have meaningful friendships, but they're ours. And they're there to give us what we need, and community is there for what it can do for us. And perhaps God is telling you right now or wanting to whisper into your ears, you have as much as you need. You have been richly blessed, but you're looking down like this, and I need you just for a moment to look up and to pour out what I have poured into your life. That could be as simple as learning to spot people in the room before you come to church who are sitting by themselves, who might have a smile on their face, or who might be distracting themselves by looking at their phone, but whose hearts are falling apart, and who knows what a kind word or a question from you could do for their lives. I do. I hear those stories all the time. A fraction of you are here because of people who have asked you a well-placed question. 
For some of you, it might be uh, uh, in your group or at work or in another relationship that you are a part of. Everything at this point exists for you, but maybe God is saying, hey, look up. I've given you a lot so that you can be a blessing. You may find tremendous reward in that. For others, lastly, it might be to press in. I say that because some of us don't have an absence of relationship. We're not selfish in our relationships. We have difficulty in our relationships. For some of you, you might be married to a non-believer who's just not into the things that you're into. You want all of these things that I'm talking about, but the other person involved isn't on the same page. It might, not be uh, it might not be marriage, it might be people at work that mock you, laugh at you, don't take you seriously, and you're just longing, you would just love nothing more than just to get together with people and to talk about Jesus. It could be a number of different things. It might be that you're hurt by less mature believers in your life, and you feel like you are thirsting for somebody, something, but nobody else is with you. Could it be that God is wanting to work not on everybody else in your life, but specifically on you? That perhaps God is working on you, and maybe the best thing that you can bring to any relationship in your life is to bring a transformed self. Perhaps God is whispering to some of you, hey, don't worry about these things or these people or this situation. I want you to press in with me. I'm going to ask Aaron, Lucas... Gabrielle to come out here as we sing together and to respond and to respond in some of these ways. For some of you, you might have never just been born again. Maybe you would hear this and you're like, my heart, I don't think my heart is alive or I'm not sure. Perhaps that's the prayer that you prayed today. God, bring me to life. For the rest of you, I want to invite you to do what we did last week when we prayed for our work to be vocation. Because we're speaking about relationships today, and the immediate thing that a lot of us want to do is just to make that a privatized thing, which I think is a big part of the problem. One of the best things you can do to tear down walls in your relationships is to start to be a little bit vulnerable. And how better to start than to ask a fellow brother or sister to pray for you? And after last week, after hearing testimonies of people's work being changed, breakthroughs coming, almost borderline miracles happening in people's lives because they were prayed for, I kind of want to do it again. So as we worship today, we're going to have people in all four corners of the area. They've got lanyards on. In fact, if you're on the prayer team, could you just stand up and go to your stations right now? Look for the lanyard and people looking straight at you. Because have you noticed when we're worshiping, nobody makes eye contact with one another? It's that person who's looking right at you with the lanyard. Just do it. Forget about the lies the devil is telling you. Forget about how embarrassing it might feel. Forget about the risk that you're taking, stepping out and getting prayer. And look ahead to the goal and to the prize that if we ask God for prayer in our lives according to his will, he will give us the answer according to our prayers. And some of us need breakthrough in our lives today. Some of our marriages need to be mended. Some of our friendships need to be healed and restored. 
Some of our wayward sons and daughters need to be brought back to the faith. Some of our parents need to be renewed in the image of their mind. Some of our workplace relationships need to be healed and transformed. And do you understand, brothers and sisters, all of that power, all of that miraculous power is available to you in the Son of Jesus who is at work in your heart right now? What if the church got up and began to pray for such things? But don't pray for yourself. Ask somebody who is filled with the Spirit to pray for you and bond over that and allow the Holy Spirit to do His work. As we do that today, there's also carpets at the front for those of you that want to fall down on your face in a very physical way and worship God. There's sacraments to the left and to the right. You can take of the bread, dip it in the cup, and as Jesus said, remind yourself that your faith is in Christ, not in your works, and thereby strengthening your faith for another day. And let's receive prayer, let's worship, let's press in, let's look up, let's step out with that desire in our heart that Christ might answer, that there might be people in our life, maybe even starting with the prayer team, who will be there waiting for you at the end of the lap saying, yeah, come on. And when you receive that, don't forget to turn behind you and say to the person who's struggling behind you, Heavenly Father, minister to our hearts, to our lives, and in our relationships by your power, in Jesus' name, amen.